0: Welcome to another episode of No Challenges Remaining. Back in America, we are Ben Rothenberg and joined as always by Courtney Nguyen. Howdy, Courtney. Welcome back to the U.S. of A.
1: Howdy, Ben. I'm happy to be home.
0: I'm happy to be home, too.
1: I'm not going to lie. It was a long stretch, I know, for both of us.
0: Yes. Definitely. This is the shores on which we belong, I feel like.
1: I think that's definitely true. I don't know about you, but I think it, towards the end of Wimbledon, I was kind of not running out of gas, but kind of just missing home. I was ready. That's- and I don't know. Maybe some of it has to do with Murray mania and kind of being knee deep in all of that for so long, but it was just kind of like, okay, I'm ready to go home now. You guys can have your party. I'm I'm going home.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, I mean that was. I mean it was a happy note to end on, I guess, on a lot of ways because they were happy people for the first time in seven seven years, allegedly. Yeah, I mean it was uh, good to be able to sort of move on. You don't want to linger. You don't want to stay too late after the party, dying down.
1: Exactly. No one wants to be the last guy at the party.
0: So it was good to turn the lights off behind us and let Britain do their thing in the dark i don't know what that meant
1: but <laughs> i think you do i think you do
0: <laughs> kind of do I, I think that uh we're back here and we're ready for the tennis season to keep rolling along the tennis really never stops or at least not doesn't stop right now and that's somewhat frustrating but also somewhat comforting to know that you know no matter how big a deal it is to end the seven year curse like palermo don't care it's just going to keep on going being palermo
1: palermo is the honey badger of the tennis circuit really i think that's fair
0: yeah so let's start by talking about sir andy murray as i'm sure he'll be called by the end of the year because they hand those things out very regularly if the guy who rides the bike around in circles gets to be a knight <laughs> andy murray absolutely gets to be a knight as well i guess. sir I'm at chris, you, chris hoy chris honestly what what is that
1: did did mo farah get knighted no right he's just mo farah
0: I, i've never heard of called sir mo Sermo. Sermo is a much better name than Sir Chris.
1: So, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, I do. I had this conversation with a bunch of Brits while I was over there, kind of just asking about the whole OBE thing and getting knighted and whatnot. And I just was like really confused because, you know, there's all these kind of random people who get. I mean, obviously, they're random to us. I'm sure they're not random to Brits, but random people that get knighted. And I'm always like, so are we supposed, like, we as Americans or, like, other countries or even just within Britain, is everyone just supposed to know that that person is knighted? Is everyone supposed to know that they're supposed to be, like, referred to as a sir or dame or whatever? Because I kind of feel like that's really annoying.
0: (laughs) I mean, it's just like, what does it mean? What does like, what Chris Hoy have in common with Judy Dench?
1: Nothing, yeah, no. What
0: is the, what is the uniting bond here? Anyway, if someone wants to explain that to us, please feel free. But it seems like Andy Murray is on pace to do that because he was the first British man in 77 years to win Wimbledon. And before we get to actually Andy Murray, I want to get to this weird backlash that's happened about the curse. Where, you know, all these people have been saying, oh, you mm-hmm. know, Andy Murray's the first Brit to win Wimbledon in 77 years. Unless you think women are people. <laughs> H- how do we feel about, about the, the sudden uprising of Virginia Way loyalists that's shown up <laughs> <out> of nowhere?
1: Of <laughs> <laughs> Vir- Virginia Way truthers?
0: <laughs> I, find it very, I find it very unexpected. And obviously we are people who, if you've ever listened to the show before, we're all about women's standards. We probably talk about the women... More than the men on this show, honestly, but I don't think either of us, at any point in the weekend, were like, "Now, now, I remember Virginia Wade." What do we, what do we make of this
1: feminist backlash? Well, I don't honestly. I of everything that I had read, and from all the coverage that I had listened to, whether it was BBC or ESPN, I don't recall anyone ever <laughs> implying that Andy Murray was like the first Brit to win in 77 years. I mean. At least I know in print, everyone is very specific as saying that he's the first British man to win the Wimbledon Men's Singles title because... He's not the first British man to win Wimbledon. I mean, they've gotten they've had Johnny Murray winning doubles. They've had Jamie Murray. Yeah, Jamie Murray winning mixed. So he's not even the first Murray to win Wimbledon.
0: And he finally matched his brother on Wimbledon titles, which was a little awkward, I'll be honest, for Jamie to be ahead for so
1: long. For, For sure, for sure. But yeah, so I didn't really kind of understand it. I obviously saw it on Twitter and I mean just kind of always assumed people knew what people meant when people even if people said it you know, inelegantly, that Murray was the first British, first Brit to win Wimbledon in 77 years, I assume. Or,
0: or said, like, they end, like, 77 years of British waiting, I think was the phrase that I saw uh, get chided. Like, yeah. I mean, this is still, we're still talking about the same thing. P- these things, for most part, are covered separately in the sport. You yes. Know? People talk about Yannick Noah still, even though Mary Pierce happened in 2000. People talk about Andy Roddick in 03, even though Serena and Venus have won, or Serena – Won the U.S. Open a few times since then. Yeah, that's uh, just kind of how it works with these things, and that's and that's okay.
1: Yeah, I don't really, I don't really have a problem with it on the whole. I mean, it, it doesn't make me blanch when people put the men's championship trophy at any Slam as being more prestigious than the women's. I don't know. Maybe that's wrong of me, but I don't really have a problem with that because I kind of – not that I would agree. I just think they're two separate competition. When Virginia Wade
0: won, I'm sure she was being paid cents on the dollar. Right. So you did it yourself, Britain. Yeah. That. Good for you, Virginia Wade. Now we can talk about that streak. We can dump all the pressure on Laura. Why not?
1: Why not? So Let's, it, seems, it seems pressure really works out well for everyone. It only took you 77 years.
0: Right. So it's been 36 years now since Virginia Wade won British. So you need to have a statue of her on the ground. So do you think it's where there's a fra- statue of Fred Perry and like no one else Wimbledon? Yeah. That's what I kind of a little
1: strange. That's super, super strange. I mean, let me ask you this. I mean, obviously, when we come into the U.S. Open, it'll be 10 years since Andy Roddick won and American Man won the U.S. Open. Because I found this, thinking about this quite a few times while I was sitting staring at the ceiling in my uncomfortable chair in the press room at the All England Club. Uh-huh. Does any country care as much as the Brits did about their a home guy winning their home slam? And is that because it was 77 years, which, okay, I guess that's an argument. Or is it just kind of a, a, a press-made narrative that just they just kept pressing because it made everything sound so much more dramatic? Like, if this goes with, like, 50, you know, 30, 40 years of no American man winning the U.S. Open, is the American press corps going to be pushing it like that?
0: I kind of think yes to a degree because, we, I mean, 10 years is nothing compared to 77 years.
1: I did say I that. I did a quick hit on BBC World news or world sport or something where i said that and they're like just had to get that in and i was like yes had to
0: (laughs) well i mean math hashtag math uh, with an s (laughs) on the end of it i mean come on 77 and 10 are not comparable numbers but i do think that yeah it part of it is for britain before the london olympics they really were a nation largely devoid of any significant sporting triumph and even the stuff they won in london was mostly minor events i mean they have a really vaunted heptathlete now, which, good for her, but she's a heptathlete. And I think they won the World Cup, I want to say, in 66 England. But after that, I think this was... Murray winning women was probably their biggest sporting triumph since then. The U.S., we tend to win a lot of stuff. And even in the tennis front, we still have Serena. They don't have a Serena on the women's side. Or, you know, Davenport, Capriati, Venus, uh, Chris Everett, right. you know, Navratilova and Celeste when they're both playing for the U.S. I mean, we've had plenty... Of winners, we're not as starved for it as they.
1: Yeah, we're spoiled. Are. We're and spoiled, I yeah.
0: think there's more a more of a proclivity for woe is meism on that island than we really have. I think it's the weather. I think they just sort of feel <laughs> they have sort of constant gloominess that I think they're. Uh, and so they were happy when this you know golden boy in the summer showed up to rescue them all from it.
1: It was interesting to see so many op-ed pieces. I just read one this morning in the Independent, I believe that was. Like Andy Murray's triumph proves that, like, it won't, it wouldn't go this far. I may be exaggerating a little bit, but the tone of a bunch of Off Ed articles was Andy Mur- Murray's triumph proves that Britain doesn't suck at sports. Yeah. And I was like, well, I mean, tr- trust me. <laughs> <laughs> I was very happy for Andy Murray, and I am genuinely happy for Britain that they've kind of been able to kind of celebrate this and just the whole, env- like, just feel around London during the whole two weeks with respect to murray and, and laura were were was fantastic they actually oh, very like, cool. believed very cool. that they could win and it was like that's nice to see because normally you guys think that you're going to lose everything and it's annoying like it's a very foreign <laughs> concept to americans yeah because we Debbie think we're, yeah we think that we're gonna win and if we don't win we've somehow been robbed but yeah it was i was kind of like well yeah huge triumph amazing but I mean, 77 years. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden you're a a sports powerhouse.
0: Right. You have one, they have one guy. They have one guy who's really good and he's not good because he's British. There's nothing like uniquely British in the way that Andy Murray did anything in this sport. He was brought into the game by a parent, which can happen anywhere. He was in Scotland, which is really far removed from all the LTA uh, system and auspices and all that stuff. And then he went to go train in Spain. And he has a Czech-American coach now and, like, a Venezuelan hitting partner. I mean, yeah, he's just, he's just a guy who happened to be born on the right island of these people. And that's what I was sort of remark thinking about, you know, when Andy was out on the balcony, like, doing his little fist pump and all the people were going nuts, which obviously is well-earned. But it's just this weird sort of concept of sports patriotism, which goes in everywhere for the U.S. and every other country. Like, why was everyone so excited when some guy who lived on the same island as them finally won this tournament? Like what's the difference? What would have been so wrong with Djokovic winning? Yeah, you know, in terms of why is Djokovic not someone to get excited about? I don't know. It just seemed it's an interesting sort of geopolitical moment that probably existential to get into too much here. But I just oh, yeah. thought it was. I mean, I thought um, it was odd. Um,
1: um, imagine if if Djokovic had taken that LTA UK deal and decided to get a british passport and play under the british flag is you know there are reports that he that at least he was courted yeah back when he was younger he definitely was yeah, yeah he definitely was so and then he wins i'm sure they would have go- i mean would they have gone as ballistic I, maybe I don't, I don't i mean i genuinely don't know because britain's just a different i don't pretend to understand how brits see like emigration and stuff and, like and that I mean, and what is a true brit as opposed to like
0: it took them a while to warm to Andy being you know being a Scottish guy, I think that was definitely a roadblock to some people early on, and they sort of got used to him.
1: Yeah. I've seen comments where people think that, like, which is incorrect, but, well, I don't think that it's correct, but that, like, the LTA bought Laura Robson away from Australia. So it's it's just kind of, well, it's like she moved here when she was six. I mean, she's British. Like, I don't really understand this, but, you know, there are complicated kind of social implications to all that. But, yeah, I mean, it is interesting to kind of see kind of the nationalism and I think Brian Phillips for Grantland had a great piece on Andy Murray where he really kind of talks about that of just like trying to navigate his genuine happiness for Murray winning Wimbledon as like an individual accomplishment for Andy Murray and kind of you know trying to balance that with kind of this like wait a second why is Britain going nuts over this because it's weird yeah and kind of and Britain kind of and British press kind of turning it into this national event and historical event and just kind of feeling from the way Brian writes it kind of uncomfortable kind of with how those two things inter- intersect in this global age where yeah there's just ridiculous globalization in sport and why are we so why is in this situation why is it the the national boundaries why are they so stark
0: and uh, and when we have very recent you know comparison because Serena won the U.S. Open in 2012 yep, and there was nothing like that whatsoever Granted, it was like her 15th slam and we're used to it at this point. But there was no, I mean, she did like a whole talk show circuit and stuff. And people were like, oh, good for Serena. She's so great. All time great, whatever. Um, but it wasn't like, lo, a messiah arrives kind of thing that we have here.
1: Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. It's an interesting yeah. thing to, I mean, we'll see how it plays out over time. And yeah.
0: We talk actually about the tennis, I guess, <laughs> for, for, for Andy. Not just what it means to Britain, because all the coverage really was, what does this mean to Britain more than actual X's and O's of the match? What did you make of, of the men's final and the three hour nine minute straight set win for, for Murray?
1: I think that, generally speaking, it's easier to kind of focus on the event and, and the significance of the result rather than the X's and O's because the X's and O's kind of sucked. It wasn't great. It, was it
0: wasn't a great match. It
1: wasn't a great match and, and you know, everybody can kind of gloss over that because it is a tremendous result. But the bottom line is when I go back to that match, the only point that I even want to re-watch is match point. And that's it. Like, I, I really, you know, maybe that last game was obviously, you know, a struggle and, and interesting. But for the whole, you know, many people kind of called that match and I remember walking around the the press center before the match was going to begin and you just overheard everybody in the press room kind of being like oh it's going to be Djokovic in three Djokovic in four Djokovic in five Murray in five Murray's got no chance you're crazy but no one picked Murray in three and I think that a lot of that has to do with this general sense that Novak was going to recover from the five-setter against Del Potro because we've seen him recover in from epic five setters to play good tennis again in the final so Australia
0: after he beat Favrinka like 12-10 in the fifth he uh came back and absolutely stomped Burdich the next round.
1: Exactly. So we weren't lulled into this notion of Novak's going to be tired, which is maybe unfair to him and maybe unfair to Del Potro. But given the track record, just like we, it's hard for us to fall into that trap with Rafa as well, because Rafa goes and plays that ridiculous match against Fernando Verdasco and then comes back you know, to beat Federer in five sets two days later. So we don't really get lulled into that trap with uh, rafa either but yeah it wasn't it wasn't a great match novak in my opinion did not show up and t- i think that one thing that was actually really interesting based off of novak's performance in that final as well as novak's performance in the semi-final of the french is that novak djokovic when he plays his like c plus game can still win matches against the people we consider the best in the game oh yeah you know like he was he had a he had what four two up in the second and four one up i could be flipping these in the third But either way, he had a break lead in both the second and the third against Murray. And just let it go. And for no reason, really. I I totally
0: agree with that. I think on the men's side right now, in the big four, if everyone's at their best, I think Djokovic wins.
1: Absolutely. No doubt in my mind. No doubt in my mind. And so, you know, I think there are questions about Djokovic going forward in terms of just like, you know, he needs he's had a lot of bad losses this year where mentally he just kind of like went on the fritz you know like dimitrov in madrid del potro in indian wells that weird match against haas in miami yeah you know a a series of matches a burdick in rome where he had no reason to lose lose those matches or to even put in the really shocking performances that he did and a lot of them he was up in the third set and he lost or the final decisive set and he lost and that's quizzical that that's worrisome if i'm a djokovic fan but again, I mean, you had Djokovic not showing up, so that's on Novak. But for Andy to play as well as he did, which he played, I thought, a very just solid Andy Murray match. I don't think he played, like, above and beyond what he's capable of. Um, he played I, well. Yeah, he played well. He wasn't redlining or anything. So, you know, good on him. And, and again, going back to that final game for everything, his entire career and all the expectations and his basically his, his having a mental freakout over what it meant if he was going to win Wimbledon. And to overcome that and finally do it, that was that was pretty cool. That was, I tipped my cap.
0: Definitely. And I think it's just a thing with these two. I mean, this is probably the most relevant rivalry in the men's game right now between Djokovic and Murray because they have met in, I guess, three of the last four slam finals at this point, and they're number one and two. Mm-hmm. But the tennis they produce, for me, it's just never been that enjoyable to watch. I did not enjoy the U.S. Open final tennis-wise or the Australia Open final. Or this match really, it's just it's too much, uh, you know, yin and yin of these like defensive punchy type guys, and they just play this tennis which sort of grinds each other into dust. Except for neither of them really either, even breaks. So I don't know. It's just something just unsatisfying for me. There's not enough contrast in their styles to make it a gripping match. I think you need someone in these in these rivalries like a Federer who's going to play offense or. Like Adele Potra, who's going to, you know, really sort of go for his shots and try to dictate with his forehand. Or like a Burditch who's not in the same league, obviously, it's the other guys quite the same but i just the murray plus Djokovic. i don't think it's ever equaled tennis that i've really liked and it sort of you know worries me that this is going to be the marquee battle on the men's game for the next few years because i don't know how many fans it's going to bring in just it seems unpleasant to watch because it just looks painful for them
1: yeah i mean when they play each other it's definitely like a siege mentality they both just kind of like you know dig their trenches like at the baseline and they sit there and i mean obviously i think that is an oversimplification on the whole I mean I think that Novak tried to get to the net he obviously, I think his fatigue had something to do with that he tried to be more offensive he tried to be more of the aggressor I think what's very frustrating for me kind of with Murray is that he has the the ability more offensive minded and he was more offensive minded that's when his game really kind of unlocks and it's it's a pleasure to watch in my opinion and I think we saw that in his, semi, his five-set semi-final loss to Djokovic at the Australian Open two years ago.
2: Yeah.
1: I thought, Which I thought was the best match those two have ever played against each other. And it was a pleasure to watch from first set to last. And in that situation, Murray kind of did break. I mean, like physically, he just kind of like went through that weird fourth set lull and, you know, everything. And then it was a battle in the fifth, but... You know, he has the ability to, to, to control rallies with his forehand if he wants to, and and it becomes very frustrating when he doesn't. But at the same time, it's it's difficult when they play each other. They just know their games so well. But it's weird, you know, in the men's final, the Wimbledon final, to see, like, Andy Murray trying to out-defend, like, Novak Djokovic. Like, that's, like, the weirdest game plan ever. I mean, it worked, but it was weird. It did
0: work. It was just a weird Wimbledon final kind of match. I mean, you expect Wimbledon finals, Wimbledon, grass court tennis... Be about serving, and there were so many breaks in this match. I mean, mm-hmm. this is such a sharp contrast from a final just uh, four years ago between Roddick and Federer. Yeah, it just looks like a different surface completely. And I know that there's a lot of homogenization that goes on with that, and the game is changing. But this to have this match happen at Wimbledon, I thought, was very odd. And it just sort of seemed like such a, in some ways, you know, copy of what could happen in any Grand Slam final. That I don't know. It's just a little bit not encouraging for the future of what what I want big men's matches to look like I guess
1: well would you prefer to watch Djokovic-Murray or Djokovic-Nadal because I know that you don't really love the Djokovic-Nadal rivalry either no I I
0: think that one lacks some punch too I think there's at least a little bit more personal tension at this point with those two even if there wasn't always because they have played a lot more big matches against each other and both have stopped the other one from you know completing some big things especially like in 2011 like they're I mean, yeah. clearly seemed to, I mean, you see the sort of handshake evolution of what happened at the, <laughs> over the course of that year. And I think there was a little bit more sort of grit in there now, but neither, I mean, I don't know, not, neither of them are, are great for me. I, but I did like seeing Del Potro come back as hopefully like a relevant person in the game, especially with Nadal and Federer neither making the third round of this tournament. I mean, we're going to need some supporting cast guys to step up, and I think that Del Potro did a pretty good audition for that at this tournament.
1: Absolutely. I mean... I'm all for Del Potro being a thing again. I have been ready for Del Potro to be a thing again since he lifted the trophy in 2009. Like, I, you know, he's just a game changer, an absolute game changer. And Um, he's very entertaining.
0: He's a very, very good showman. So it's, that's good. And I thought Janavis was actually pretty good too. Definitely has sort of a a very different vibe on court than Del Potro, obviously. Much more intense. But I thought that his game, you know, worked well. I could see him getting back to these big stages plenty he's still really young he's 22 i mean he's like ronich's age so yeah. i mean for all the talk about who the next big thing is of that generation clearly it looks like it's gonna at this point even though he wasn't someone who came with any pre-hype whatsoever the way that like a dimitrov did or a harrison did or a ronich did or atomic did yeah atomic Tom, but... has time to catch up because he's younger but i think of the other guys in terms of Rodditch and Harrison at least I think Janowitz is way ahead.
1: No I mean I, I, I am not willing to to buy into Janowitz kite yet. I mean okay. I think that his talent is is great. I think he'll make he'll constantly be be a threat I think because of his game but I think that expectation can weigh you down and this guy's never been expected to win. He's been able to kind of be in that honeymoon period of like if, if he wins great and if he loses no one talks to him and it's okay and there will come a point where he is expected to win where he will be considered the dark horse where he will be hauled into press on a daily basis. Basis and explaining wins and losses. And I think when that begins to happen, you know, the mentality completely changes. And I'm not convinced that Janowitz has the mentality that will deal well with the negativity that can, that sort of expectation can breed. He's a really emotional guy. He, he can be combative with press. Mm-hmm. He can, you know, be very dismissive. And in a lot of ways, I think is, is emotionally immature. Um, I don't think that he's quite ready for for that. So, you know, I yeah, yeah, yeah. I I just think that I, you know, I would not I would expect from him at some point like a one to two year lull where he kind of goes back to being Jersey who and then maybe once he kind of like grows up and and kind of is able has had time to kind of deal with his success, deal with the expectations, understand who he is and and how he wants to play the game, et cetera, et cetera. He'll be good. I mean, because the raw talent is there. Definitely. It's it's absolutely there.
0: Last men sort of point wanted to touch on is sort of what comes next for Andy Murray. And I guess this sort of fits more into the first topic than the second, in terms of like his publicity, his popularity, all that stuff, tennis wise too. What do you think the rest of now that he's won the U.S. Open, now that he's won the gold medal, now that he's won Wimbledon, he's absolutely no longer could ever be called plucky. What do you think the future holds for Andy Murray in terms of how he's perceived and how tennis rolls on, Courtney?
1: I think now the, the narrative changes, right? I mean, the narrative definitely changes to where it's Andy Murray champion, yeah. and what can he now do? In other words, he's 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 slashed the two big monkeys from his back which is guy never won a grand slam he's not allowed to be considered part of a big four it's not a big four until andy wins a slam well he did it last year and then it was like well he's only won one and then also obviously wimbledon okay well now he's done that so now he is based on you know the numbers right now regardless of what the ranking says he is kind of right up there with Rafa's being considered, you know, the number 1 player in the world, and Jokovic, you know? yeah. yeah, but he's up there, he is part of the big 3. It's actually Roger who's the odd Yeah, man. Roger's
0: definitely the odd man out at this point for sure. Yeah,
1: so it's those three gunning and and I think that it's great. I mean, I think that it'll be I'm curious to see now that those things are off his off of him what he can do if he can now play kind of unencumbered and not play with fear and not play with this specter of oh you're going to fail. And maybe he'll embrace that and be kind of a more positive player and I mean that on all scales in other words not just being kind of a more positive person which i definitely think that he was throughout wimbledon
2: yeah
1: he, he was really relaxed and he handled press really well um and the way he played was very positive even with but, some ridiculous ridiculous questions rolled that in, oh say. my gosh you out wow, you british tabloids you're special You it's, you are really bringing something special. unique to
0: the press room british tabloids. <laughs> when he beats verdasco in five sets and comes back you know for two sets down and someone asks him some Tabloid woman asked him if it was tough to play Verdasco because his mom has a crush on him
1: what which mind you the girl read that question off her notepad? Yeah,
0: she was weird that one reporter <laughs> she would like always write down her questions and like read them off paper and they were always ridiculous I don't know it
1: was well I was told that tragic. a lot of like all those kids like that work for the tabloids that were at Wimbledon like basically the editors would tell them go ask this player this I'm sure and that's yeah. what they did so it wasn't like an independent like I'm gonna ask him about Judy Murray and they
0: were so proud of themselves afterwards oh, and they were like oh he just looked at me and said no ah uh, like really that's sad
1: yeah Look,
0: yeah look at yourself british newspaper culture just look at yourself <laughs> um, but yeah no i completely think that's interesting you know, you know he did that really well he's definitely going to be someone who's no longer an underdog whatsoever he's no longer scrawny he's no longer from this country that can't win the big one he is winning the big one even if his country didn't have much to do with it and i just think it's going to be an interesting sort of transition for how he's perceived around the world too he's no longer an underdog he's no longer it's like little engine that could He's not like a loser. He's not a loser. He's nothing. What I compared it to a little bit when we were talking about it before he even won, compared to like the Red Sox. The Red Sox were this really sort of popular team in the U.S. It's like everyone, at least when they started getting closer to winning, late '90s and early last decade, becoming a competitor Like people wearing Red Sox hats everywhere. Everyone's rooting for them. Oh, can they finally do it? Can they break the curse? Can they, you know, break through? And everyone's, you know, oh, go Red Sox. You know make history, break the curse, whatever. And they finally did in 2004. And then they suddenly stopped being charming. Yeah. It became this obnoxious, like, people who, when they won again in 07, and nobody cared. There was no, like, oh, wonderful Red Sox, you know, history, so quaint over there in Boston. It's just it all the charm of it wore off. And I think it still exists with the Cubs a little bit, because the Cubs still have not won yet yep. a World Series or even come close. But it for the Red Sox, it's over. And I think Murray's Red Sox phase is over. I don't think there's anything at all endearing necessarily about Annie Murray going forward as being, you know a sympathetic character he shouldn't
1: be yeah i mean there, there's beauty in the tragedy right and and now there is he's no longer a tragic hero no. he is simply andy murray two-time slam winner olympic gold medalist like will one day become no doubt about it the first british man to be ranked number one since the the computerized rankings were introduced sure like he's gonna he's gonna climb every single mountain in that way you know that's does that change anything? I mean I mean I I guess Djokovic never really had to deal with that. I suppose Djokovic was just always the big knock on him was he was the guy that was supposed to break up the big two. He was supposed to break up the duopoly and then he did.
0: And he won his first land fairly early, Djokovic.
1: He did. So with Murray, I don't know. I mean I, I I think now it becomes how many can he win? Can he get to number one? But does he become the magnetic character that he was before i don't think that he was a magnetic character in the beginning i mean i think murray has always been if they in terms of a fandom of the top four murray was the indie choice sure right and so i don't think that that changes now i don't think that people bandwagon on andy murray going forward i
0: don't know people like winners and they're certainly going to be if current trends continue there could certainly be some federer fans looking for new Allegiances, but if
1: you're but if you're a Federer fan, there's absolutely nothing that you would like about Andy Murray. That's I mean,
0: totally
1: true. Yeah, you know, I mean, like that doesn't make any sense. Like, and he's not going to take Djokovic fans, and he's not going to take Rafa fans. You know, I think that Mur- the Murray fandom has always been a very nice one because it was like no one ever hated Andy Murray. It wasn't like it, he got ripped on or was like that guy's a piece of shit and he's a horrible human being. It was just like he's Andy Murray, he's toast. You know, he's white toast with you know unsalted butter and a really bland marmalade. Oh. oh i say this out of love i mean <laughs> i think people know i'm a big i like andy murray i was very very happy for him to win and a lot of what is my kind of just general affection towards him a lot of that has to do with kind of his blandness and his normalcy i, I kind of gravitate towards the normal sure but yeah i mean i don't know does he i mean i don't really even know what a world looks like of andy murray being a compelling character let alone a less compelling character yeah. i just kind of feel like he was just there yeah. doing his thing <laughs>
0: agreed last thing i want to bring up on murray before we finally get to the women sorry virginia wade at all what do you make of andy murray when he won turning to the press box and pumping his fists at them what was that
1: what was that I don't know. I don't even know if Murray knows. You know, like, he just kind of did it. Like, some people had the theory that, like, oh, he was discombobulated and he thought that was his box and he didn't realize his box was on the further end. Or, watch,
0: we were watching on the monitors in the press. room I and we couldn't tell immediately it wasn't his box. It was, like, in the opposite corner. Right. So, I mean, unless you were paying, like, really sort of mm-hmm. close attention to where things were orientated. Yeah, that was... There has to be some symbolism there, Courtney. Must there be from to the And it? be like, yeah, sure. yeah, press. take. Yeah, that. I mean... Not that, you know, not that I, plenty of them were not fist pumping right back at him.
1: I have no idea if plenty of them were, but I know for a fact one was... One was, yes. One was. If you pay, your, if you pay one pound, you can find out who it is. <laughs> Paywall. But yeah, no, I mean, I one of the pieces that I really liked after Murray's win was Steve Tigner's on Tennis.com, where he kind of t- went into the fact that obviously Murray won this for himself. This was about him. This was about his team. But it has always stricken me how aware he was of the need to win it for other people that other people needed him to win yeah whether it was fans whether it was all of britain whether it was you know Yvonne lendl where whether it was the press corps and this i mean i think the first time that i ever really got ever any insight into this was back when he first cried after losing to fetter the aussie open mm-hmm. final yeah where he kind of chokes up and and says you know you know and when he addresses the british public I and mean, just really feels like he let them down and i think that's always been a very underwritten aspect of murray is just how conscious he was of all that so when he turned to the press corps i mean i mean he said it after after the match you know that that he understood how much the press needed him to win i guess which i thought was a really weird thing to say i can't imagine like an american saying that and then of course part of it was i'm sure like there there had to have been some faces in there where it was yeah like a bit of a fuck you like i did it you said i could you said i couldn't do it and i did it
0: there's so many different faces in there that's the thing
1: yeah exactly
0: people in there there's all the british tennis beat writers who each bring their own sort of angle to it i mean you know there's a lot of people who have been tough on him there's other people who have been complete suck-ups the whole time i mean so it's it's a it's a different group of people and and just a whole sort of that was what he first turned to even if it wasn't you know if it was more subconscious than conscious i don't think it's completely without meaning i don't buy that i just think it's interesting fascinating i find it fascinating fascinating who else I find fascinating, Courtney? Who, Ben? It's Marion Bartoli. Oh, Marion. Marion Bartoli won Wimbledon.
1: <laughs> Say it again.
0: Marion Bartoli won Wimbledon. Like, the Wimbledon. Like, actual, like, the big one.
1: The big one. That is, Mar- that is Marion
0: holding up that big plate. That Bless that me. was not supposed to happen, Courtney. How did this happen?
1: How did this happen? This happened because, as ever, just it's inexplicable. And I don't mean that as a slight towards Marion, really. But in terms of what had to happen in order for her to hold that Venus Rosewater dish yeah. is nothing that anyone could really predict. I mean, it was really just a series of it was dominoes Yeah, to, to kind of pave the way for her. Now, the, the great thing about the Marion Wynn in my opinion, is that she isn't a fresh face that we're going to be or a random person that we're like, oh, well, she's just gonna OK, like now I have to pay t- attention to you. Nor was she necessarily a journey woman who had never accomplished anything. No. And while there's like a feel-good element to it, we kind of know that it's it's a shot in the dark. Um, sorry, Francesca, I may be referring to you in that one. That's fair. But she's someone who has proven herself over the course of like what is her career? Thirteen, maybe thirteen years? Maybe I'm overshooting that. Yeah, this
0: was her 48th Slam, I believe. Right. Her 48th Slam appearance, which is the record for most ever before winning your first title. Right. And I think, yeah, I think that for for Marion, for me, this was not the best tennis I've ever seen Marion play this tournament. I mean, what she did at the U.S. Open last year, beating Kvitova, and then what she started to do against Sharapova in that quarterfinal, I mean, like, that looked more like slam champion tennis than what she did in Wimbledon. At some degree, she sort of earned her own luck. She kept putting herself in these positions to do well at slams. And then finally, one did break... Wide open for her. I mean, she's number 15 seed. Didn't have to play anybody ranked above her. That's surprising. Yeah. But she, you know, carpe diem the hell out of it. Yeah. yeah. That's that's what it came down to.
1: Exactly. And, and she had, I mean, she didn't, I mean, yes, she didn't face a top 10 seed to the title. First open era woman to do that at Wimbledon. But she didn't drop a set. No. To anyone. It's not like she scrambled and struggled and like, "Oh, it was kind of dicey." It's like, "No, she beat everybody." Everybody's granted, she
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, but granted she benefited from three straight crap performances from her opponents. So Sloane, Flipkins, and then uh Sabina. Yeah,
0: I thought Sloane I thought Sloane was okay. I think Sloane was the best of those three performance performance-wise.
1: Yeah, she was the best, but can't hold serve, seriously? No, that's seriously. True.
0: That's true. She could not do anything. On
1: and she serve. and she didn't handle the rain break well. It just was, I don't know. It was disappointing, in my opinion. It's
0: disappointing for Sloane, because Sloane very, very easily could have won Wimbledon. She could have won Wimbledon. She absolutely. Sloan Stevens could have won Wimbledon, which would have been a whole different storyline to try to make sense of. Because yeah. It would have been, I think, fair to say, ahead of schedule for what Sloan is ready for.
1: Yeah, I agree. That would obviously Obviously, have been a great result for her personally, but I think of the big scheme of things, the expectation which would, would have been out of control, just the hype, and and she's still finding her game. She's yeah. still growing into herself and as a person, and and all these sorts of things. And when that stuff comes too early, it, it doesn't work out well for many people. No,
0: look at Ivanovic.
1: Exactly, exactly. So. I don't. It was such a Marion Bartoli way to win a slam.
0: Yeah, kind of was, kind of wasn't though, because she had this like overflowing box of friends. A lot of mm-hmm. times we've been in tournaments, you see the only person in these big player boxes there for her is her dad. This one, she like clearly used up all of her tickets. She invited Amelie Moresmo, who's been with her all tournament. She invited Kiki Medenovic, who was in the mix final and won it with a next All in for day Kiki. Later. All in for Kiki indeed. <laughs> and she had her dad there. She had like a bunch of hitting partners, coaches, all this stuff. So it was a very much looser Bartoli. And she seemed to have really come out of her cocoon a little bit and become the butterfly we all knew she could be. (laughs) 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 Is that that part of what helped her win, you think? The sort of looseness of being more open, or is it just a coincidence?
1: I I don't think it's a coincidence at all. I mean, I think that, you know, all throughout the tournament, you kind of heard her say over and over again and i talked to her a little bit in eastbourne about this about how yeah things had loosened up she was she was happier she was in a a good happy place and and one of the really key quotes i felt throughout the 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 fortnight was from her during her pre-final press where she said you know the dream was just to make a another grand slam final you know like everybody was saying oh isn't it you know you could get your dream of winning a grand slam and she's like no i mean honestly like my dream was just to get into the final again and so i think when she said that i thought a that's quite striking because very few people would just say oh no i'm just happy to be here kind of effectively but I i really do feel like she went into that final kind of feeling no pressure no. And she had that support box and she was taking naps 30 minutes before the, the semifinal. She was laughing and giggling as she was warming up before the final. She said that when she kind of walked out and she looked at Lasicki's face, that Lissiki looked absolutely stricken by the whole thing already before the match had even started. Yeah, And she was just loosey-goosey and she went out and she played not a great match, but she played a solid match. A no, much she better match than Lasicki played. Exactly. That's that was yeah so but yeah, and, and she got it done and, and when she was done she had people to celebrate. She got to kind of do the Andy Murray go up and down, hug a bunch of people, you know, in your box sort of thing and you know, good honor. But you know, kind of being able to play without pressure and without fear and not feeling that anything's gonna be lost if you miss out on this opportunity. Yeah. because she's not young. I mean, if anything, if I'm if I'm younger, like a Lisicki, and I go into a Grand Slam final, my first Grand Slam final ideally what I think is this is just the first of many that I'll be in if I don't win it there will be plenty of other opportunities because I'm so young and you would think the opposite would be the case for the older players but I kind of feel like what we've seen is that the older players are the ones that take advantage of it
0: yes in the recent past anyway that seems to be the case yeah. and with Bartoli absolutely she was the one with sort of more loose this probably was I'm guessing I mean obviously drugs can open the up again if she can find that sort of peak form again but this very well could easily be Mary Martoli's last slam final, which is be fine. I mean, like, I asked her in her presser, I asked, you know, what sort of comes next for you? You have, you know, you had zero for a long time, now you have one. What's next? And she was like, I'm. if it's just one, that's fine. I'm happy. Which is not, you know, you don't usually hear tennis players, like, settling with what they already have. And obviously, she knows that she's, she's a smart lady, as we've all heard the numbers mm-hmm. on. Obviously, it'd be a big ass for her to win another slam. But she seems content. And Lasicki seems seems to feel like she has a lot more to prove all the time.
1: Yeah, I, I feel like a lot of that pressure just comes from her, from Lasicki's own head. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think when you play kind of with that chip on your shoulder that, that you belong, that you need to prove it, that you want to go out and you want to beat, you know, the Serena's, the, the whoever's are in front of you. That's great. Like, obviously, because I think that you and I probably would both agree that, you know, we like that swagger. We want the players who are ranked lower on both the men's and women's tour to back themselves.
0: Yeah,
1: definitely. More to, on the men's
2: tour, More on F4. the men's tour
1: yeah but like you know to back themselves to be like yeah i know i i I believe i can beat serena and i did it and you know what credit to you but when that that pressure then becomes a negative which i think that it was in the final it looks ugly and i don't think the crying was a great look for women's sport. I don't think that, I mean, mid-match, I don't care if you cry afterwards, you can ball all you want afterwards.
0: Yeah, mid-match crying wasn't great. Even like a bunch of like former players, analysts, were really sort of getting Lissicky a hard time about that. Like yeah. Martina Navratilo, which is not entirely surprising, was saying, no, you can't do that. Even Tracy Austin, I was a little bit surprised. Yeah. I was like, what was that? Like, come on, I expect better. Yeah. So that was that was a little surprising to see. Um, but credit to Lissicky. and all the Wimbledon get in sort of chaos. Same thing for Lissicky and Djokovic. Those guys did not have easy draws whatsoever. Siki nice. especially. From the very beginning, she played Skiavoni, Vesnina, Stoser, who was actually playing pretty decent grass tennis for the first time, arguably ever. Mm-hmm. Serena Kanepi was not the hardest quarter, but is still a capable player. And then Radvanska in the semi. And then that was that's a tough draw, much tougher than Marion. And Lisicki was not shy to point that out afterwards. But I think it was <laughs> a fair point in some ways that, you know, she did have a harder road, even if I don't necessarily buy that it you know, exhausted. Or I think it was
1: just the occasion that got to her more than anything. The occasion got to her. Yeah. I mean she was kinda of pointing I mean, obviously I'm sure there's the mental strain and it, it does kind of catch up to you after a while. But yeah, you know, you just gotta beat the people in front of you. You know, Marion did and, and Lisicki almost did so what do you
0: what do you think big picture of this Marion Bartoli winning Wimbledon means for the WTA? Tour like what will be the post Bartoli world where these will people have more belief? Will the top players sort of be a little bit more vigilant, or you know, trying to stop this from happening again? am I'm just imagining like Serena, Sharapova, and Aspernke sitting around a TV like watching Marion Bartoli win Wimbledon. Like, what are they thinking?
1: <laughs> yeah, I I think that it's it's it is similar to kind of Schiavoni when winning, win, winning that one year, where I mean Francesca, I mean had one of the easiest paths to a slam final ever, yeah, and then obviously played the match of her life to beat to beat Stozer. So she earned it in that way. But before, I mean, she got into the final thanks to her retirement from Elena Dementieva in the yeah. semis. You know, it was a bit dicey. But, you know, after that, I think that what you do have to remember if you're in the WTA locker room, I think it's an important lesson given kind of the stability that we've seen in the WTA over the last like two years, is that anything can still happen. You guys can't go into a slam just being like, well, what's the point? Because in the end, I'm going to have to play Serena and she's going to kick my ass. Yeah. Anything can still happen. And you just need to focus on the one match that's in front of you and not get ahead of yourself. And you know, and th- and, and good things can happen if you just keep putting yourself in a position, like you said, Ben, like to to ha- let good things happen around yeah. you and to take advantage of, of luck.
0: Because yeah. it, it was different than Schiavone a little bit. Schiavone really did seem to summon her best tennis ever. Yeah. And I don't think Bartoli necessarily did that. But I think right. that Bar- yeah, Bartoli just kept doing, you know, very much a tortoise and hair kind of thing in this tournament where she just sort of kept you know chugging along yeah it was there and she took it agreed good on her
1: agreed but, but yeah i mean i don't think that it changes anything going forward maybe people might be more inclined to look at her where she is in the draws you know maybe tag her as a dark horse going to the open maybe
0: but i don't i think that's just sort of contrived a little bit i think that's sort of you know what you're supposed to do is make the Wimbledon champion grab relevant i don't think she should be considered a shortlist person to win the u.s open whatsoever
1: and we'll see what she does in the hard courts. That's true. And even then, like, why should we even put any stock into that? I mean, she... She
0: had a terrible year before this.
1: Terrible, terrible year.
0: Really that. I mean, she was down number 15, which is the low she's been in quite a while. I think it'll be interesting to see what people make of Serena going forward if she... People are looking for more sort of upset opportunities. Same thing with, you know, Federer and all. Federer can say, oh, you know, you guys in the press weren't giving enough respect to the field, you know, making this Federer and all.
1: Which is such a bullshit comment. <laughs> so... Like, I almost laughed out loud in press because he was so... Pointed in it. And I was like, sorry, Roger, you're saying that you wanted us, the press corps, to assume that you would not make a quarter when you made the quarters for 36 straight majors. It was just such a stupid I was like, really? You wanted us to dismiss you and basically say, well, Roger has to get to the quarterfinal first. No, that would
0: be really right? stupid for us you, to say
1: that. And you would have been pissed because then you would have been like, oh, everybody's writing me off. Yeah. So I'm just like, I, that comment just killed me. I was like, you're wrong. <laughs> you're so off. That was
0: not, that was not
1: correct. Hey, you lose to Sergei Sakovsky, your brain goes on the fry. I get it. That's fair. Totally understandable. That's fair. Totally understandable. That
0: is fair. And then Sergei Sakovsky goes and loses to John Leonard Struff in the first <laughs> round of Bastad. Obviously. Obviously. That's what that's what a Federer beater does.
1: Exactly. But hey, he can always tell his grandkids that he kicked the butt of Roger Federer. He
0: can probably won't mention the, the straw part.
1: Well Straff's grandkids can probably say I kicked the butt of the guy who kicked the butt of Roger Federer.
0: Transitive property is a powerful thing. It is. If you are not already you can subscribe to us on iTunes uh, to type in No Challenges Remaining in the search bar and look for the one with the recent episodes. You can also like us on Facebook. Our page is facebook.com slash ncrpodcast and follow us on Twitter as well. Our handle there is at ncr underscore tennis so all sorts of way to stay up on this fun courtney
1: eh? absolutely and if you'd like to we'd really appreciate it if you go onto itunes and submit a review and let us know if you like us even if you don't either way but at least like
0: hopefully you like us
1: hopefully you like us i mean i don't know why you would listen to us blabber on about tennis for over an hour if you didn't like us but um
0: pure masochism
1: I know, I guess, which is basically tennis fans anyway. So why should I be surprised? But yeah, if you can submit a review and, you know, stuff like that, that really helps us in terms of getting kind of higher up in the search searches and things like that. So we would appreciate that.
0: Awesome. So we're going to close out with some audio of the new Wimbledon champion, Marion Bartoli. Courtney, I know that she's one of the players who you and I have both sought out for interview really consistently since we've started doing this gig um, because she's just one of the more interesting and open people to talk to. And so we're going to hear some stuff from her uh, first from you uh, when you talk to her in Eastbourne. So tell us a little about what that was.
1: Yeah, it was it was very nice. She, she took the time to talk to me at the beginning of Eastbourne, which is a tournament she eventually withdrew from with a viral illness. But I just wanted to include it on the podcast because it's interesting to hear what she had to say back then you know whatever one two three weeks before she eventually was holding up the trophy yeah. a lot of insight into her mindset and and specifically one of the reasons that i requested the interview and wanted to talk to her was specifically regarding kind of all of this kind of veiled or not so veiled charges of her being a weirdo a whack job a, you know as chris mckendry tweeted a spaz all these sorts of which things is apparently tra- a very bad
0: word in britain which we were not apparently.
1: Aware of. Which I didn't know. I acc- i mean, not accidentally. I said it on uh, live at Wimbledon one day, specifically referencing this Chris McKenzie tweet and all these Brits that were my friends. Were like, "Holy crap! I can't believe you said that word." So I did not know. Did not know, did not know that. But yeah. So and then so I specifically kind of asked her about how she feels about it—sad or annoyed at the fact that it's become such a focus. People talk about her. Whether what it was like to kind of grow up in the junior locker room with kind of that sort of reputation and. Yeah. Whether or not it was, it was hurtful to overhear comments, things like that. And Marion being Marion, she answered every question very openly, very honestly, and with a tremendous amount of kind of insight and perspective. And yeah, I just wanted to kind of share it with everyone because I think that it's a really great interview. Thanks to her.
0: Very cool. And then after that, we're going to hear one that I did with her in Hotman Cup last year. You remember Marion's 2012 Hotman Cup appearance <laughs> for the time when she double-bageled uh, Australian Yarmila Gaita in front of the home crowd? <laughs> it was one of the more shocking moments in Hotman Cup history. I think it's probably fair to say <laughs> that was really something. Uh, before she did that, or maybe, I don't know if it was before, it was after. It was after that um, match. I talked to her. She still had, you know, the blood on her hands, essentially, um, from mm-hmm. that beat down. So, yeah, so we'll hear from Marion there, and uh, that'll do it for us this show.
1: Have a good one, folks. Later. <laughs> I you, you do use an iPhone?
3: I'm going to switch because I just... Comp- it's time to switch. Yeah. But I love the new BlackBerry, the yeah. Z10. Oh, have you tried it? Um, I looked at it because I need to have a really good plan for my phone because mm-hmm. I'm paying some phone bills are ridiculous. Yeah, I'm sure. And um, the French uh, group for Orange, naturally mm-hmm, yeah, communication... Yeah. They're gonna do me a deal where I would have uh, all new phones every single year, and Solid. a fixed amount by months, no matter no uh, matter
1: international roaming. Exactly.
3: That is huge. Yeah, <laughs> so it's for the best. 200 customer in France. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm probably one of them. <laughs> You're so ten. The <laughs> yeah, and that's that's a deal. So yeah, that's yeah. Good stuff Okay. Well, I just want
1: to talk a little bit about um, going back to the French Open a little bit, and then obviously to the grass. But you played some dramatic matches um, on Chartrier Yeah. Um, I mean, how would you kind of sum up your your Roland Garros?
3: Um, well, I do feel every year when I'm not going into the second weekend the French, I'm kind of not having the results that I want but on the other side I was really proud of my efforts and, and the two matches I on Shatria were really excited and um, the crown was really pushing me and it was some great memories so it's kind of a mixed feeling but obviously <clears throat> I was not playing at the level I wanted to and I was going back from injury after my ankle right, right. injury I had in Madrid so I could have done better but I could have done a lot worse as well yeah. so I was kind of pleased with my effort
1: mm-hmm.
3: but um, I'm looking to play better as well, like I did today, for example. Yeah,
1: exactly. I mean, like, in a a match like that, are you able to enjoy what's going on? Yeah, yeah,
3: I think I, I mean, as a French, of course, you have some pressure, but I've been able to play well there, reaching the final four in 2011, I believe, and and really enjoy the part Mm -hmm. of being French, having the crown supporting you and everything. So I feel like this year I enjoyed more than last year, for example, Mm -hmm. but I do feel I can do better as well. So, um... I think I still have that in, inside my body. I can bring out more on the table mm-hmm. if I'm able also to have a better weather and the surfers can be a bit faster because sure. it was really hard this year for me. Yeah. But obviously, yeah, it's going to be next year mm-hmm. and then uh, it's going to be next try. How How have you
1: kind of sensed over the course of your career from playing the French Open when you were younger to mm-hmm. now? Uh, how the support changed over time? Do you feel like they've embraced you more now yeah, than yeah, before? and definitely. why Why do you think maybe it was less before?
3: Um, well, I think before we had Emily and Mary Pierce, mm-hmm. and obviously they were really the center of the picture and it's normal. They were two huge stars in France, so people were really looking at them to support them to go deep into the tournament. Mm-hmm. and. Uh, the kind of lower-ranked player in France, really more the side. And um, I felt when I took that pot in back, I think, in 2007, yep. I started to already have more support. And then, of course, playing the Fed Cup this year right. also really helped me to have the crown behind me. So um, I do feel the improvement, and uh, and it's exciting for the years to come. You know, if I'm able to, um, to be in better shape and to play better and everything, then uh, I'm sure I can have another shot to something exciting exactly I
1: mean going into Wimbledon you yeah. love it it's yeah, I uh, do. It's, I do. it's 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 your baby right I mean it's it's yeah. kind of the yeah, slam you, that you love yeah
3: exactly it would always be very special US Open is also the top of my list Yes. Obviously. but uh, yeah there is so many memories and you know some dream I really felt like I lived my dream in 2007 mm-hmm. you know walking out on a Saturday playing the final from game Venus Williams who mm-hmm. I really idolized when I was younger yeah. and um NPS Brosman, I mean, the whole thing, <laughs> the
2: whole, the, the the whole stories, yeah, yeah, the
3: whole everything, which is really like a fairy tale. And mm-hmm. um, does every... it seem like a long time ago? Or Does it seem like no, just yesterday? It's, yeah, it's it seems like yesterday. Honestly, I mean, when I two years ago when I played so well and i will be serious, now, I'm number one. I start to feel like again it was building yeah. up, but. Then Sabine played tremendous match against me and I had nothing to regret. But every single year from 2007, every time I'm walking back there and I, I have those slash memories coming back. It's yeah.
1: Is there one specific memory from 2007 that always rears its head when you get back on? You know, you know
3: what? It it's, it's when I beat Justin and everything was empty. At the end of the day, it was late and you're kind of taking your car back. To, to have your ride back to, mm-hmm. to your place. And everything is green, everything is calm. There is no one left almost. Mm-hmm. And uh, you feel like the next day you're gonna play the final of Wimbledon. Mm-hmm. And that was amazing. I could have stayed there forever, yeah. even <laughs> sleep there on the next day. But, you you know, sleep under yeah. the tarp or something it like would, that. Was, yeah. I mean, I had Pierce waiting for me outside of the of center the court just mm-hmm. before the stairs. So taking some stairs back to the locker room, he was waiting for me outside there just to congratulate me and everything. And just you walk by and Kind of doing your press, your massage, whatever, and you have this feeling that you're on the top of the world. You just mm-hmm. be the number one player in the world. You just had a standing ovation in the court. It's amazing. And and every year when I pick up my credential, the first five minutes I have those flashback memories coming back. I remember it like it was yesterday. That's awesome. That's
1: awesome. Um, you know, obviously you're a different player insofar as you do, you know, both two hands on mm-hmm. both sides. Also, you know, as everybody always kind of talks about, you know, a lot of the, the jumps and the yeah. shadow swings and yeah. things like that. Does it ever annoy you that that gets brought up as much? You know that, that
3: you you know, know you're more
1: than that. So <coughs> yeah,
3: I have this kind of philosophy that y- you don't really play or act for anyone except yourself. I mean, you don't really. If you start to act thinking about what the other one are gonna think about you, you start not being yourself, mm-hmm. and I don't feel like it's it's real. Uh, something that I want to I just want to be myself and uh, like when I play today I don't feel like I'm annoying my opponent or whatever I think I do it in a very respectful way Mm -hmm. but obviously I'm trying to also do my best when I'm on the court and it's a way for me to express my best tennis so I'm I'm really a person that is very respectful of everyone and Mm -hmm. and everything but I just also want to try to do my best every time I'm on the tennis court Mm. and um, that's just Part of me and part of my game, and obviously, some people like it because I have so many fans all over yeah. the world. But yeah, it will always be part of me, and I'm sure <laughs> even when I will be a retired player, sure sure. I will still do the same. But you In know, Legends
1: events, you're it gonna still be <laughs> <laughs>
3: but, but you know what? It's it, yeah, it, it's just me, it's just who I am, and I guess it's also nice to have something different sometimes. I mean, when you start to have everyone playing just the same mm-hmm. way with the same technique, with the same thing kind of don't even remember what just happened because you just see every yeah. single match the same one as from the first to the last one so we, when you have something quite different well yeah. at least people have to talk about something
1: yeah well exactly people have to talk about something but like do, do you it, I think in my opinion it takes a strong person to be able to have that mentality because I know how difficult it can be in the locker room where you hear things from fans or journalists ask you questions mm-hmm. that you consider rude or something do you think that is that just you or did it take a time for you to kind of it accept this it's
3: took going to yes.
1: it, but it, did it hurt initially
3: um, do you think
1: like comments it, that you'd hear
3: yeah but that's why also I'm trying not to read anymore mm-hmm. the comments because um, obviously when you're a young coming up player you're kind of more looking at what the other yeah. one think about you or of what course. the journalists think about you and of course it hurts because you feel like it's it's it, you don't deserve those kind of comments in yeah. a way but um, over the years and obviously maturing and, and knowing that obviously what comes the most for me is to play well and to be happy on the court more than what I read or what the other one mm-hmm. think about. And you can accept it more. And obviously when I'm able to show up my best tennis, then people are really enjoying me mm-hmm. and um, enjoying my game and enjoying to watch me and cheering on for me. So that's also very helpful. But It takes, yes, a strong personality to kind of accept who you are and Mm -hmm. and not trying to please everyone. I think this is an hopeless cause, but just Mm -hmm. trying to please yourself. And again, in a very respectful way. I'm I'm never trying, never on purpose to annoying my opponent or to, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of doing stuff that are not nice to... The yeah. other one that is playing Right, and me. I don't
1: think that you're. Exactly. I don't think anybody's ever charged you with that, really. I mean, well, I don't know, maybe they have
3: Sometimes, yes. There's, sometimes they're saying, well, she's doing this she just on purpose, that. you yeah. know, just kind of to annoy the other one. I, I'm i always very respectful from the Leisman to the Empire to the ball girl, ball boy, whatever. Yeah, yeah. I'm just trying to play at my best. Yeah, absolutely. Are you going to be in Stanford? Yes, of
1: course. I live, in, I live in the Bay Area, so that's my home tournament. Yeah. It's, it's nice and relaxing, and it's a nice, yeah, I think the actual U.S. Open series is a nice lead-up for the U.S. Open.
3: Yeah, I, I feel like, uh, I love Montreal, Toronto, Yeah. but Cincy, I mean, all those tournaments are kind of more busy. And, yes, Cincy and, you know, so is
1: weirdly busy because it's yeah. not a busy city, but the tournament is so Yeah, and you in. feel
3: like, I don't know, you're kind of being outside of the city as well, so you feel like mm-hmm. in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And, I love at, for that. I mean, you can walk just by this street. Yeah, that little house.
1: college area. Yeah. I mean, the university is beautiful in and of itself, but then also just the... The Palo
3: Alto um, area with all those restaurants and everything. It's just so nice. Yeah. I love that university. Yeah. I
1: wanted to go there when I was a kid. That's where I wanted to go to school. It's, it's so it's, beautiful. Great. it's great. And then school. you have the
3: town center shopping when you can mm-hmm. get your gym and just whatever.
1: Yeah. So <laughs> it's <cool>. dangerous.
3: Yeah. <laughs> no. Good food. You know,
1: quiet. You know, yeah. you get to shop. Yeah. But uh, but going back to it, I mean, where's their there... I mean, was it kind of like having to talk to your dad or to family or friends to kind of help you? Because, again, I mean, I just think that it's, it's it's a remarkable thing to be able to learn to kind of embrace, you know, your quirks and, and your weirdness. And I think that in a lot of ways, a lot of players don't do that. that yeah, in juniors, sure. they
2: yeah.
1: are, or even before juniors, they're quite free and they're quite, you know, they just want to play and have fun. And then somewhere along the lines, whether it's something they hear or something they read, they kind of... Fall into their own shell. Mm-hmm. And, and that's you true.
3: Know. Uh, yeah, I, I think it really depends how you have been raised. And my parents always told me to just. Don't try to act like everyone else, but mm-hmm. just try to be yourself. If yourself is just being like everyone that's else, okay. that's fine. Mm-hmm. But if yourself is being a bit different or for example, I love cars, I love soccer mm-hmm. and at the same time I love fashion and I love to paint and you know, it's mm-hmm. it's part of me. I'm a very multiple personalities mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I think I kind of express that on the court. But I my parents never told me how to be. Mm -hmm. I've just always been myself and I never kind of really talked about it to anyone but I have some few friends really I can talk to and I'm confident with them and they always told me to um, you're a very nice person Mm -hmm. so just don't try to change that because everyone will see Mm -hmm. you're you're deeply a nice person and no matter what you're doing so yeah I am I'm just really happy now in my life and Mm -hmm. um, with everything I've been achieved so far and I think I can do a bit better in some few departments but overall I mean if you look at the big picture I'm just really pleased with everything I have, and I've been so blessed.
1: Yeah. I mean, looking forward, I mean, it's, you know, a lot of you look at Serena, you look at Venus, you Mm. look at some of these players, Francesca, Lina, who are all, you know, kind of achieving even greater heights in their career later on. Does that kind of give you confidence and almost take some pressure off of maybe 10, 15 years ago, we would start to say, oh, you know, Mm. Bartoli's getting older, you know, and and things like that, and the career's probably going to end soon? That's not really what any of us thinks nowadays. And does that take the pressure off of you as well to feel like you have? To it does, it does results. because
3: in a way, you know, again, I've been achieved already more than I thought I would be mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I, I really have this huge goal to play again another Grand Slam final mm-hmm. And it's kind of re-driving me because I feel like I have this still inside me And uh, obviously I'm in great shape and I'm not really, have a huge injury or, or whatever that really took me aside yeah, of the off. court mm-hmm. Exactly, so uh, I'm, I'm so motivated and still so patient with what I do every single day That I kind of feel like I have three, four, five years still to play and of course it takes me some pressure because I don't feel like tomorrow is gonna end. I have right. to do it and do it right. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm really in a, in a part of my career like I I really like, you know mm-hmm. I don't have to prove anything obviously yeah. I've been able to do so much But I still feel like I have this yeah. little you something. You still have the drive yeah, exactly. and you still
1: have the fire I mean is that a little bit of, of, of you brought in Thomas uh, Drouet, I guess. Uh, yes, um are you still working together, or is that, joke? Was yeah, that just yeah? Yeah, we the do. We do. <coughs> um,
3: we started the French, and um, I really need to have very good player to practice with. Mm-hmm. And obviously, it's just one piece of the team. I really need to build up a team around me yeah. now that can really take me where I want to. Um, obviously, if, when you want to be in that elite, yeah, you have to have a very good team around you. People, knowledge, and uh, and ma- make you work. You know, mm-hmm. in a nice way, but make you work sure. as well. So you can't do it on your own. And I will have some time to think about this. I will meet some people in Wimbledon. Uh, okay. sometime after Wimbledon to really uh, settle down and, and um, see who I'm gonna pick and 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 where I'm gonna train, but to um, build
1: your team larger or to like solidify certain pieces. In other words, like it sounds like you brought your father back in. To yeah, the I, I, d- I
3: don't, I don't,
1: or you just don't kind of know yet.
3: Yeah, well, my father was really a very short term, and then uh, mm-hmm. we were both agreed on it. So I'm I'm on my own again, and uh, okay through um, Wimbledon. Yes, through okay. Bron and throughout the year. Oh, gotcha, but okay. I I really need to have this um physical trainer, mm-hmm. maybe also a tennis trainer, and really a team that and a place mm-hmm. who can practice and, and two or three people that I trust and they will make me work and, mm-hmm. and bring me where I want yeah. to but um obviously it takes time to find them it and does. I kind of um, rushed a bit after the Australian Open. It was like in the middle of the season yeah. and I had no time to resettle really down and so I think Wimbledon would be a good time for me to, after it, before it's Stanford, break. Stanford yeah, exactly. before Stanford to really build up that and uh, have a good, strong summer. Yeah. To build up to the US Open. Is it
1: is it slams or bust for you these yeah, days? Yeah. It's just about the slams.
3: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I have this goal. It's not even in of Ranking anymore. It's really <laughs> this goal to play another grand Slam final. That's really what's driving me and, and I want to be there again. <laughs> and obviously I'm not looking at the results in any other tournaments. It's really the Everything's a lead up. up. Yeah. Everything's exactly.
1: everything's a lead up for another tournament.
3: Exactly. Okay, cool.
1: That's perfect. That's all I needed. Yeah,
3: well, Thank you
0: won via double bagel yesterday. Mm-hmm. Which uh, has to feel pretty good. What's the feeling like when you're playing that well and not losing a single game?
3: Obviously oh, it's a mixed feeling because on my side of course it's great, but I know on my opponent's side it's very difficult to take on so um especially because we're a very good friends with Yarka, it was it was hard, you know, to, to make her feel like this on the court. So um but I was so happy with my level that it was great for me to start the year that well and playing so well right away.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: So it was a bit of both. But and then we had a lot of fun in mixed doubles, so I yeah. think <laughs> it makes it easier. You
0: had, uh, you're someone you're always very serious on court a lot of times, but in the mix you seem to have a good time. You know, going back and forth with Leighton and grunting and whatnot. Uh, what yeah, happened? it was it was
3: yeah. cool. Honestly, it was very it was very nice and. Um, and, and Richard makes so many jokes all the time. <laughs> what sort of
0: stuff does he say?
3: He makes me laugh so much. Oh, it would be a long story because we know each other since 13 years. So um, it's something when in our childhood or what it reminds me about a tournament or whatever. But um, I had so much fun, honestly. It was yeah. it was really nice. And Ledon was really nice with me as well. So it, it was... It was really a, a nice time for me.
0: Oh, that's good. Is that something you'd hope to do to play more mixed? I know you haven't played doubles since you made the Wimbledon final.
3: Yeah, well, the, the trickiest part for me is I can do it for a week. Constantly it's really hard because playing so many matches in single, it's really almost impossible for me to, to do both Yeah, Now
0: you're, playing a lo- now you're yeah. running more, you're playing more singles. Yeah.
3: So um, I'm 27, so I can't really do as much when I was 22 or 21. I can do both, so I really have to, to manage myself more now, and um, it's just a matter of, of trying to um, focus on the main thing, on the main picture, and and try to stay healthy as much as I can.
0: Yeah. I know you're, you're very focused in one way that you're focused sort of manage yourself is through the practice, swinging, you do a lot between points, and in the locker room yesterday, even after the match was done, doubles was done. You were, I still saw you doing it some in yeah, there, that, you know, without was, the racket.
3: That, yeah, that was a warm-up thing because I would see I had uh, a time off between my singles and, and Richard singles, and you know it was late and everything. It was after so doubles. It was after the doubles. Yeah,
0: when we were interviewing you two together.
3: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. because I was, um, I was not really okay. happy about some forehand that I missed. Was so your practice?
0: You won six out, six out, and you weren't happy. That's great.
3: No, in the doubles I missed a so few shots. I was not happy with and and. Richard I traded off about it because I was like, Gosh, I can't me that kind of shot and he was like, Come on, relax, you're just <laughs> you won this match so just let it go and I was like I still can't me I kind of show, it's just impossible. So I guess I'm too perfectionist sometimes but yeah. that's probably why also I'm I'm there. So.
0: Yeah, tennis yeah, it's like a full time thing. You can't ever feel like you can't ever turn the switch off. Well, yeah. I,
3: I'm kind of reaching off quite quickly, but that's true that after a match, if I really felt like something I shouldn't miss again, even though it was fun and, and, <laughs> and everything, I still want uh, to do everything perfectly. So um, I had some few shots, some few forehand that I could have played better.
0: Well, some people I've heard say when they're, when the first time they see you play and you're jumping around and doing the swing stuff, they're like, who is this girl? You know, I've never seen anything like this before. Have you, you realized that what you're doing is unique or how did you come up with start
3: doing that um well actually as far as i can remember i always been doing that even for my first match when i was six so that's pretty something that it's really into my mind for not something many, you decided many, to do many a years more, yeah. no but um you know again when, when you play a match you're so much in your zone that it, it's hard really to uh, focus on what the other one are thinking because obviously you're focused on your own abilities and what you have to do and everything and and to me, it's it's really important. I felt I'm the best prepared before the points start, and that's why I feel I'm the best prepared. Even though sometimes it's not walking, that's still a way for me psychologically to feel good, which is important. Yeah.
0: Um, I noticed you weren't doing it at first when you like your first set against Lina. There was no hopping, there was no swinging or anything. It just takes you a while to get back into the rhythm of playing the first match of the year, I guess.
3: Yeah, exactly. And um, and you know I really wanted on that match to to see where my level is and mm-hmm. and without trying too hard mentally because honestly the first match of the year and you can't really be 100% right away. So I wanted to see where my level was and I was really pleased with the way I played even though I love that match. I think it was a very, very competitive match so in uh, the second one I can start to um, switch it again. So. And
0: you double bagel. So that's not, not a bad second
3: match.
0: Yeah. Uh, the other change I noticed now, I think this start, I'm not exactly sure when it started, I'm sure you know, so you're wearing Lotto yeah. now. When did that start?
3: championship last year? Championship
0: last year. Mm-hmm. So just when your alternate but Okay. I saw. I read something that you were starting with Under Armour in New Haven. Yeah. What, actually, what happened there? No, just,
3: actually, just... Um, Under Armour sent me some stuff to try on okay. and uh, to see the fit and everything. And then it was a matter of contract proposal. And uh, and Lotto was on the spot also, so it um, was just read to see the fit and see whether I can play with uh, the clothes or not. But um, then the discussion was starting and obviously it's, it's a race, so it's the one who make the best offer who get the deal, yeah. basically. I know
0: you were without a clothing deal for a while, you were wearing...
3: Yeah, um, I guess the top ten things changed a lot and um, and probably also the year I've done, 2011, yeah. yeah.
0: So, makes sense. Uh, I know while you were without the contract though, you wore Nike a lot, why did you decide to keep wearing Nike even though they weren't endorsing you for it?
3: Yeah, well, they actually they endorsed me on 27 2007. Okay. They endorsed me for it's a good year. year to
0: endorse you. Yeah.
3: And um, and then and then they didn't follow up on 2008 and uh, and Nike was representing to me the value that I felt that was really me on the court about giving your best and, and try your best effort and everything and uh, yeah. that's why sometimes you just go with the brand you feel like you're into you. it exactly yeah. and um, that was the feeling I had.
0: So you didn't feel... Were you also trying to think... Because I know that Venus Williams said the same thing, actually. When you are both in the U.S. Uh, Wimbledon final Gator, she was wearing Reebok even after they had stopped, uh, her contract was up. Do you do it at all thinking like you're dang loyal to them so they should appreciate you down the road at all? Is that some you your thinking too?
3: Yeah, well, I always had some good relationship with Nike people, um, with mm-hmm. Suzanne Pong, which is yeah. working with Serena and yeah. everything, and she has been a good feeling each other. Then, then, of course, between the feeling and the business part, it's different. But, um, well, the shoes <coughs> were fitting to me perfectly, and I'm still playing with Nike shoes, yeah. even though I'm switched to Lotto. It's or,
0: important to have exactly. those be good. You don't have a problem but, there.
3: Exactly. But then, the, um, because I made the final of Wimbledon with, with Nike, it was also a matter of um, good memories and yeah. everything. So that was a part of it. But now it's it's over. It's, it's time to move on.
0: Yeah. Another thing that I noticed during the first match and second match also is that uh, you are the only player here that I've noticed who, uh, when they play the anthems, is singing along, and so you know very is very enjoyed. Everyone's just sort of standing there. You're clearly yeah,
3: I, very Yeah, I'm proud. very yeah, I'm very patriotic and I of my country. And um, obviously, I know the lyrics, <laughs> which helps, I'm sure. But um, yeah, that was that's always something that I've done no matter what for which um, final or if it was soccer or rugby or whatever, every time the French Adams has been playing, I've been always singing it, so... It's
0: a good anthem. Yeah, it's, go. it's a
3: nice one. I like the United States one oh, as well. Oh, thank you. But I like think Canada's
0: um, the best, actually, if you have pick.
3: But. I, I like the you know, United Kingdom. I like the United mm-hmm. States. But, um, yeah, I really feel I'm proud to be French, and um, i love to see my flag around.
0: Yeah, I know, but you haven't represented France. This is the first, like, team competition for you where they're saying, game France instead of game Bartoli since 2004.
3: <laughs> yeah, but it's not a matter because I don't like it, it's just yeah. a matter, it's because my federation is just so... I don't know what... I, I can't find a word to describe them, to be honest with you. It, it's it's really hard to believe, and especially now because I'm just the only one and, yeah. and they are still don't understand, so I, I don't know what I have to do to make yeah. them understand. I asked them
0: actually for like an explanation because it doesn't make any sense. I haven't yeah. heard anything back from them yet, but... No, you isn't. won't hurt
3: back because they just can't explain themselves, so this is <laughs> this is the pretty truth. But uh, but I, I just love to play for my country, yeah. and, and we're just having so much fun with Richard this week, honestly. We just love to play for friends, and, and well, I, th- I think you can see it on the court as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There's exemptions, though, for Olympics. I know when they're talking, I'm assuming you heard about Martina Hingis was talking about coming back, possibly for mixed with Roger, Roger. who I know you... Follow and saying that even though she hadn't played Fed Cup the last two years or whatever, that they could apply for exemption or something, and they could still. So you have you given you sounded pessimistic about it last night. Have you given yeah, up? Yeah, I'm think, pessimistic
3: because the thing is, the French president of the federation is the vice president of the ITF. No, oh, that's not good. Exactly. <laughs> So, but um, that would be funny if we win, if we won here, and and I still can't play for my country. Yeah. I'm sure, I'm because, sure that would be extremely funny because then they will see we're not so bad in mixed doubles, and I'm not a so bad player, and I think I can represent my current country quite well, and then still don't get it. So yeah.
0: FFT has a uh, Twitter account, mm-hmm. and they were very excited about you winning yesterday on Twitter. Oh, they really? were saying like Bartoli wins 6-0, 6-0, contra You know, there was just a lot of enthusiasm there. So. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that. I was surprised. It was, you know, if I'm So I don't know if that means anything. Another thing um, for Olympics actually, Ksenia Pervak. Yes. You know who that is, she was Russian. Further down the rank, that's the top four, and she switched to playing for Kazakhstan mm-hmm. to get a shot at the Olympics. I know that you live in Switzerland.
3: I won't change my citizenship. You wouldn't, you would never no, no, I'm French, and and I'm hundred percent French, and. And there is no way in the world I'm going to change my citizenship for playing the Olympics. Even no. if uh, I will survive, even though I don't play the Olympics. Even, even if Roger right.
0: asks you to play Max.
3: No, I will survive. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's all right. I love to play with Richard. We have a very, very nice time every time we play with each other. So. I will play PlayStation Olympics. I will. Probably
0: be the same. Good to have that. The other stuff I wanted to talk to you about is your serve, which is, as you said yesterday, and you know clearly you were ace leader in the WTA, which was not, you weren't always known as a very big server, really, throughout your career, I don't think. No. But now, all of a sudden, number one. How did that happen?
3: Oh, a lot of work. I can tell you, <laughs> extremely hard work. That doesn't come overnight. And yes. And
0: did you just do it with your uh, father, or your coach? Because I know that some players have brought in special serve coaches, like Nadal. I know brought in a special coach for his serve. Did you do anything like that? Or just no, anything? no. We
3: have, we have been going through the motion and, and through a lot of videotape and everything, and and try to get the most. Video of, of
0: yourself or other yes. players? Yes. Okay.
3: And and try to get the most of my physical abilities. And I'm not extremely tall and not extremely strong, so I need really to have a good acceleration, a good racket acceleration and um, that was a a key and I need to work so hard on this and it's extremely difficult because that's the only shot I play with one hand on the racket. Everything else I play with two hand, and you don't feel the same way when you play with one hand and when you play with two hands.
0: Well, I've noticed you're reaching more now with one hand than you used to. I think. Yeah, I
3: have a bit more strength on the arm and the upper body, but um, you know it has it's been a lot of work. Yeah. Trust me, a lot of work.
0: And I know one other thing. I have a friend who's a professor in California who studies a lot of statistics and sports and probability. Mm-hmm. And I know that you're a big math person. I've heard yes. about that. And he he wrote something here. About, about Ivo Karlovich's serve, mm-hmm. saying that uh, he wins... When he steps the line to serve, serve he makes 66% of his first serves, mm-hmm. and he wins uh, 80% of the points where they go in. So he wins essentially 52% of points putting those together. But then on the second serve, he only wins 50% of his points. And it, he's saying that probably, statistically, it would make much more sense for him to try to hit first serves both times and not worry about missing them. And you, yesterday... Playing very well, obviously hit six aces in each set and a few second serve bases, and the exact same percentage of first and second serves going in. Same sort of risk, not pulling much off, not a lot of fear of you know doing yes, that, is, that, that intentional that strategy is, for sure.
3: That is absolutely you done right. the same
0: calculations, I'm sure.
3: No, I, that is absolutely right. I I didn't go through the calculation, but that is what I feel on the court, and and, and especially because the serve, if if I throw in a weak serve, then. Right away, especially on the women's game, your opponent is starting the first strike aggressively. And especially when you play against someone who's a side of top 10, like Vitova or Nina, they re-attack it right away. And, and you're pulled out on the defensive side and you start to run, and and they grew on confidence on that. So it's, it's, even though sometimes I make a double four, I prefer to hit a double four serving hard, but don't don't give them any rhythm attacking me and and me playing defensive. I really prefer that way, than instead of throwing a serve, I don't know, 90 miles an hour, just to put it in and, and then, boom boom and, yeah. and that's it the point is over so um that's really something that i've been working on and it's pretty really hard psychologically yeah. trust me that's because you was, saying, was saying
0: people do it out of fear of embarrassment of double fault exactly yeah. to go
3: for it in front of the Quran and especially when it's a big point to really go for it but that's also the practice of ours start to yeah play because if you have been able to hit them under pressure even though it's practice hit it is inside the court that's give you some confidence to do it again
0: with how aggressive and positive you play i mean when you win points generally because you're hitting the ball well and confidently and confidence i think i would assume has to be very much exactly in line with your success for your style of game you're not you're someone who goes for everything, it's not just trying to push the ball back.
3: Yeah, exactly. That That's always been my philosophy and even though yeah. in life, I'm, I'm just, don't wait for something to come and just go and grab it, but mm. that is, um, so far it took me not to, um, it took me all the way where I am yeah. and it's not that bad. So, um,
0: so where do you think it's going to take you the rest of this year?
3: It's hard to predict, but uh, I, I just don't want to put on myself any pressure regarding the results because mm-hmm. I've been achieving a lot already. But um, I just want to, uh, to try my hardest from day one to, to the last one.
0: Thank you. Bye. You and I travel to the beat of a different drum. Oh,
2: can't you tell by the way I run? Every time you make eyes with me, whoa. You cry, the moment's able to work out. But when you shout, I've got my They can't see the forest for the trees Don't get me wrong It's not that I knock it It's just that I'm not in the market For a boy who wants to love in me Yes, and I say